Okay, this morning I have a, a, a thought, and it's continuing uh, from yesterday morning. And when I woke up, this thought was on my mind. And God brought the word and that thought on my mind. And, and it was from John 1, verse 29, and verse 36. And we'll see some other verses where... where but really, just the, the word that came to me from God was when I woke up. And of course, sometimes when we wake up, we have maybe the dreams or maybe they were good, maybe they weren't. Uh, maybe there was a sleepless night. Maybe all kinds of thoughts were invading us, invading our minds. And, and uh, that can be the case at times. Or just we just wake up because we're, we're weak and we're frail. That's who we are before we do anything. But as that happened with me, as soon as, as, soon as I, I woke up and I began to think and these thoughts and everything began to crowd around me, God brought the word to me, behold the lamb. That's what he told me that morning was to behold the lamb. And then began to correlate all these, the beautiful scriptures. We've said before that if you take Christ out of the Bible. You have no lamb. You, if you take Christ out of this book, and, and to understand this book the way I was reading it this morning, and God brought it to my mind again, every single word of this Bible, this book, is, is a supernatural. It is a supernatural book. And it cannot be read just like any other book. Because this of all books, of every single one, is supernatural. And, and to, to even try to attempt to read it that way, there'll never be the impartation of the life of Christ. There just won't be. Because the only place that we could even try to do that, apart from him as our life, even positionally, of course, but also experientially, would only be death. It'd be, there still would be a separation from that life. So if you take Christ out of this Bible, you take out the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. And first and foremost, what he, as that Lamb, meant to God first in his eternal mind. And then obviously, what God meant him to be and what he is in, him, in his own self and who he is towards us. Because God never thinks outside of us in his love. Because his love, as we will see in the scriptures, was a suffering love. Love, we know, in 1 Corinthians 13. And when you see the word love in 1 Corinthians 13... If we experience the love of God, we know the only way that could happen was because Christ came as a lamb. <laughs> he came as a lamb. Because in 1 John 4.10, herein is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. How? He sent his son in John 3 and verse 16. And he's the propitiation. And that's huge for us to understand. He is the propitiation for our sins. And what that talks about again, of course, is it goes into the Lamb 
in the eternal mind of God, to have man to be in a proper image, and I think this is wonderful when we think about this. We've said before that, that, that God is eternal life, 1 John 5, 11 and, and John 17, 2 and 3. He is eternal life. He inhabits eternity in Isaiah 57 and verse 15. And this is talking about, so John 1 verse 1 brings out a most incredible thought when we consider this, this I don't know if you want to call it a theme, or this supernatural, incredible truth about the Lamb. We see God in John 1 verse 1. That's eternity. When you see that. So, so, so if we look at John chapter 1, and, and especially those first four verses and how they go into right into the 18th verse and then flow right into the Lamb, the expression of the Lamb. What those verses in John one twenty nine and one thirty six are going into is bringing out the thought that here is, in John 1 verse 1, here is God the Father with his Son who he never saw apart from him being a lamb. He just, he just never did. We've said before that, that God has always been. That's eternal life. That's the Greek word zoe, Z-O-E. It's life that had no beginning and will have no end. Now, when we look at that, that's eternity. God is opening us to, to eternity. But instantly that he does that, we see, we see the word. And the word... The word to us, the word that, that the Son was to the Father in his love for him was always a lamb in terms of propitiating him. In Genesis 22 and verse 8, we said the other, the other day that Abraham and Isaac, they went alone up on the hill to bring about a sacrifice. That was a picture of God the Father and God the Son dealing with the sin question of what John 1.29 says. It never says there that he takes away the sins of the world because in propitiation it's the sin question, the sin question, and the answer is the lamb. Now God has always been. There's never been a, how do we say, a time that he hasn't been because we know that, that eternity is the parenthesis of time. So time began, we do know, in Genesis, the first chapter. That's when time began. So it makes it so important because all these truths are going to be brought out. He knows all things. So we know that God has always been. We also know, too, that he knows all things in 1 John 3.20. He has all power in Revelations 19 and verse 6. He, he, he has all of that. But he knows all things. And what that's bringing out is before God ever created an angel, before he ever did, this is the answer to Psalm 8 in those first four verses, especially the fourth verse. What is man that you are mindful of him? Now, he never, ever saw his son other than who he was in his eternal mind. And who was he? He was a lamb. He didn't become that. Revelations 13 verse 8 says, 
in, in the B part of that, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's going back to eternity because we know the, the world in Genesis, the first chapter, was created. But that verse in Revelation 13, verse 8, is taking us back to the eternal mind of God. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 4, verse 3, the works were finished from before the foundation of the earth, and that's the eternal mind of God. That is the absolute eternal mind of God that we see there, crystal clear this morning. And so what those verses are bringing out is, is that God's image through his Son, and this, is, this answers Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2. He created man in his image. The image of who? He knew Adam would fall. He knew we would all fall and inherit us in nature. But who was that image that we, now that we are in Christ through receiving him, were created in? The image of his son. That even goes into the first chapter of Hebrews in those 14 verses, which are phenomenal when we correlate them. We see it even. So you see the eternal mind of God Now you see it brought out in the creation in Genesis, the first chapter. He said, I'm going to create man in, our, in his image in 1, 26 and 27, as we said in 5, 2 of Genesis. Then he forms Adam from the dust of the ground. This is all happening in time, but the eternal mind of God through the Lamb is being worked out because we know, based upon John 1 and verse 3 and Colossians 1 and verse 16, that it was the pre-incarnate Christ who created everything. So we know that when it says God was forming Adam out of the dust of the ground in Genesis 2 and verse 7 and breathed into him, as the Hebrew says, the breath of lives because humans procreate unlike angels that were created all at once. So he's forming him. He's forming him. Then we know he took out of Adam because Adam did not know he had a need till, till even God brought her to him, but he had to cause a deep sleep upon him. These are all going into incredible types in the Word of God. That we don't have the time to do it in the space that, of time that we have it right now. But that's why this book, every single word, as best as we could have it in a translation, is absolutely supernatural. It is God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. That's why no prophecy of Scripture, none of it, none of it is apart from God, ever, in 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. So he took Eve, he took Eve, he caused a deep sleep in Adam, and he took Eve out of him. And that is, of course, a picture of the second Adam, and we as his church being taken out of him. We see that in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, right down to the 49th verse, and the result of it, and where we flow in that, right to the 58th verse, the end of that chapter. So what we see here is, that's who God had on his mind, and he never saw you and I, not apart from our will, of course, first and foremost, the initiation of God's will, 
because he has one in John 4 and verse 34 that only Christ the Lamb could fulfill. He has a will in Psalm 47 and 8. It was his will. We see that again. He, he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. His will is brought out again in, in Psalm 45, 7 and 8, very beautifully and clearly in a beautiful picture. And so we see that. But again, that's what's being brought out here. He never saw, he never saw us outside the Lamb. His will fulfilled, meaning our will and where we created in his image. Yes, that's what makes up the five parts of the soul. That's what makes it up. Mind, emotions, will, conscience, and self-consciousness. And right there we see will. See, God is free in his will. He, he operates in who he is in his will. He's given us free will. Of course, we knew that Adam fell. In Genesis 3, 1 to 6, there was a fall. There was a fall. But right there in the midst of that fall, because of the subtlety of the enemy in Genesis 3 and verse 1, and in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, God forbid we get moved from him, which really means a proper image. And our image is, is given to us by the Lamb to each and every single one of us that make up that, that second Eve, so to speak, the church that was taken out of him and what he had accomplished as a lamb. You see, God's love, God's love is, is a suffering love. 1 Corinthians 13, we said in verse 4, and every place you see love there, okay, it's never charity, ever. It's always agape. It's self-sacrificial love of God, and we know who that is. That's Christ. You could put Jesus there in every single place. Jesus brought out the Father. He suffers long. And he's kind. And he's kind. And that always speaks where we get the root crestos there, where we get the root from charis, or kara, which is grace. But we see the beautiful picture, even in the fall, in Genesis, the third chapter. We see after the fall, they hear the voice of God walking in the garden. Who is that? That's the pre incarnate Christ. We've said before if you have a voice, there must be words. And that's John 1, verse 1, the word. Still the word, expressing the very voice of God, and, the, and again, their creator. Their creator. Our creator, we see, brand new in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are his workmanship in, in uh, 2, 10. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has before ordained in his eternal mind, because of the Lamb, that we should walk in them. You see, we're walking in works. We're not trying to do them. The lamb, sacrificial lamb, has done that. So when we see these things, and here, here we are, we see in Genesis, the third chapter, they hear the voice of God. They failed. They covered themselves. They covered themselves, and then they hid themselves. They, they covered themselves and they hid themselves because they knew they were naked. And even with that, that they covered themselves, they knew they were naked. They knew that. And so we see the picture then, right then, in type, in type. From Genesis 3, 15 to 21, you're going to see that's the cross. It's bringing out a lamb. It's bringing out a love that suffered. An incredible, gentle, 
kind, unbelievable, beautiful love, but never apart from suffering. Matter of fact, we'll see, we'll see when we get to soon here this morning, when we get to Revelations, the fifth chapter, we're going to see the Lamb. But that was brought out way back in Genesis, the third chapter, where he said, the seed, the seed of the woman, that would be Christ, he's, he's speaking this to them. Remember, the promise, they were in a fallen state. The promise was not given to them, it was for them, but it was given to Christ because he could only do for them what they could not do for themselves because death brought in an immeasurable gap between them. So we see, he says, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent, the serpent will bruise his heel. This is a picture of the cross of Calvary where the serpent, Satan, the Satan, his head would be crushed, his power, and that speaks of his power. That's why, that's why he has no power towards us in Christ. He doesn't. That's why he operates through lies. Ephesians 6, 11, based upon John 8 and verse 44, his methodia is lies. Intense, way too much for us apart from Christ, experientially but nevertheless lies. He crushes the head of the serpent. The serpent bruised his heel. That spoke of his humanity. Then he took away what they covered themselves with, which would speak of works, which God could never be satisfied. You look at the types and all they ever did, those sacrificial types, all they ever did was just cover. Even the mercy, mercy seat in Exodus 25 a 17 to 22, even that, the mercy seat, all it does, and that's why it's called kaporoth, it covers. That's what Job was saying in Job 14 and verse 17. He sewed my iniquity up in a bag. He covered it. That's what it's bringing out in Micah 7, 18 and 19. He, he passes by. He passes them by because he knows that Christ, his lamb and his eternal mind is going to come and deal and propitiate him through there being a creation of God that fell, and then to be the substitute and to be the reconciliation for all of those that would receive the Son. And we see that beautifully. This is brought out in the type in Genesis 3, 15 to 21. There's those that is done away with what they covered themselves with, and then he, has cut, they, he covers them with the skins of the animal that were in type. And that's what love does in Proverbs 10 and verse 12. In 1 Peter 4 verse 8, it covers. Not to live in sin, but it's a covering of grace that tells us we never have to and that sin is just a choice. And we see that in 1 John 2, 1, brought out very clearly. That love is in the will. We see that with God. And love is in the will just like Sin is in the will. It's a choice. Both are a choice. That's why it's not an emotion. That's why we bring the truth out again. Listen, this needs to be very clear. We need, this needs to be very clear. He has to teach us. God has to constantly teach us. Yes, it's right to have good emotions and to have them expressed, but they do not become the indicator that God loves us. They, they, they don't. 
And we don't need that. We don't need that. We don't need that at all. Because if that's the case, and I, I require that from another believer, say, so for instance, say I express my love through tears, and that's an emotion. If it's just that, <laughs> that proves that you love the per- person, then what is that? You just, <laughs> it's their good emotions that they're, that they're trying to make you be the equal to. It's not right. It never is right. Please, listen, it's right to have good emotions. But those, and we, we know this, they can change in a heartbeat. Instantly. Does that, and so I have bad emotions that prove I don't love somebody? What are we basing it on? Then that's the performance of the emotions. Now you're proving to me that you love me. No. If I have good emotions, it's only based upon the thoughts of God's love that never changes. They don't become, they're a fruit. They are a fruit, not a proof. They are a fruit of love in its activity in me causing joy. But I don't have to use those to prove that I love somebody. I don't have to do that. So love covers. We see that in Isaiah 61 and verse 10. They're called robes of righteousness. We see it in the type. In Luke, the 15th chapter, verse 11 to 32 about the prodigal. He had on, in his experience, because he left the house as a son, by the way. Okay, he already had the salvation, but he lived according to his own thoughts. And when he did, he was covered in what? Self-righteous rags. And in those rags, as he was coming home to the father, he was interpreting how his father would think based upon his own thoughts. Again, emotions. You've got to be careful. Don't hold people captive. Do not put them on probation because of emotions. I love emotions. I mean it, too. I love them, and they're beautiful. And I love having that expressed. But they are not the proof that God loves us nor should they be the proof. Because all that is, is, is that if that's the case, unknowingly we'll put God on trial, meaning we'll judge him. They spun our emotions and we'll do the same to others. We will do the exact same to others. There's no question about that. Love, <laughs> love is the proof. <laughs> Unchangeable. So that's what he was doing when he, he clothed them with the skins of the animal. Now that promise in Genesis 3.15, that was, that was God given to the son who was the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis. He doesn't promise anything to us in a fallen nature. Matter of fact, when we function in the flesh in Romans 8 verse 9 that we're not of, God hasn't promised us a thing. Think of how many prayers were in the flesh. Would God answer those? No. Help me, God. Well, do I know? Is it the flesh? Or is it Christ? And we can know that, and the only way we know that is through this book and through continual preaching and teaching, by the way. It has to be a continual thing for all of us. So he's the lamb. He, he is the lamb of God. And John 1, 29, it took away the sins of the world. And he's the one that took away our personal sins in 1 John 2, 1 to 2. We see that in the types in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4. Each individual had to put their hand and accept the sacrifice for their sins. 
each one, and that's brought out in the type. That's brought out. Propitiation, substitution, and reconciliation are brought out in Leviticus, the 16th chapter. Look at those 27 verses, specifically those first 10. In the 16th chapter, the two lots. This, listen, this all has to do with the lamb that took away the sin of the world. And we see it. We see it in this beautiful portion. We see it very, very, very beautifully in Psalm, the 22nd chapter. This is fulfilling. Psalm 22 is bringing out the cross in prophecy. We can tell right by the first verse, and again, in Psalm 22 and verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that Christ came as that lamb to do away with anything in the distance that God would have to, based upon his love and his justice, he would have to forsake us because he wouldn't be God. And because we, you cannot separate, and I can't, and he never does, love from justice and justice from love. They're one in his nature. Every time you see fire in the Bible, when you see that, that is the purity of God's love and his justice. They are one. They are one because in his eternal mind to create, to create man or to create angels and man, it would have to have been through his nature, which it was. We know that even with Christ in, in Luke 1 verse 35 in the womb of the 14-year-old peasant girl who was not above a single woman but was among them as a 14-year-old peasant girl, little nobody, not, not, con not concerning God, who God would form the, the impeccable humanity and that blood of Christ, which would be pure, completely different than fallen blood, because anyone that knows the Scriptures by the pure grace of God knows that the life of the body, the flesh, is in the blood. And so in Leviticus 17, 11, that's what it brings out. So his blood was pure and perfect and part of that sacrifice, not just a spiritual death. Like some have fallen to the prideful, ignorant era of. And that would be like even trying to understand Psalm 22 from a natural viewpoint or anything of the scriptures from a natural viewpoint. It would be, it's not. We have to submit and allow God, the Holy Spirit, supernatural God, to take those things in John 16, 13, and 14 and show them to us because he's given us that. Boy, what the Lamb has given us, God. He gave us himself. And when he did so, he gave us a Father in John 20 and verse 17. He gave us a fulfilled promise of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 17. And he dwells in us now as that anointing. In 1 John 2, verse 20, that unction that always will teach us when we're submitted through humility in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6 and James 4 and verse 6, he will take those things that no natural man, we have no need in 1 John 2, 27, of any natural man to teach us anything. And boy, we can do it even, as, even if we may have a gift. And when that gift is not submitted to Christ, all we're given as leaders is the flesh. You have to do something for me. Oh, God forbid. And he does, like never before in my own life, never before. But in Psalm 22, we see it. 
And we can just touch these first few verses, but then we're going to go right, right through and, and, and end it up this morning. My God, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David was just the pen who wrote this. No natural man could write this. In, in, this, in the type, the second David, or the second man, Christ, he, this was written in the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit, who gave us the word, who would, who would record the word through using human vessels, was bringing out Christ right here in the Spirit of Christ himself. Because what would the Holy Spirit have to give to you and I apart from Christ and to bring in that reality? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear me. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, can you picture the horror of all the evil of mankind, all his sins upon the pure, impeccable, holy Son of God. And it was bringing out horror because he was going down to the lowest, vilest human being, to the height of those who think that they're good without God. And he reached, he reached from the heights to the depth, to the lowest. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27, even the most vilest, wicked person, when they turn to Christ, they can see him. That as far as they've fallen in their bottom, he's underneath of their bottom. This is what's brought out here. But he said in, in verse 3, but you are holy. Here he's crying out with all the sins of only those who would receive him. By the way, in John 8, 21 and 24. Because if he paid for the sins of the whole world, there would be no judgment. Revelations 20, 11 and 15, there would not be. And that's what makes the difference between the Bema seat to be not a judgment seat in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, but an evaluation manifestation seat manifesting who we are in Christ as individuals in a history of our life with Christ. And then what is consumed is the fire of his holiness and it's revealing what his love and justice has done about whatever we did that wasn't of him. And when we're not, we're there in a beautiful glorified body. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5.11, there's no terror at the beaming seat. The terror will be at the great white throne. If we only understood the depth and necessity of this, for people, for loved ones that aren't born again. And in prayer, again, again in prayer, no question about that. In prayer, in, in total trust in God, in total trust in Him, in taking up the opportunities to do that, to present a living Christ who died for them. But you are holy, O you that inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, did deliver them. They cried unto you, were delivered. They trusted in you, were not confounded. Look what he says here in verse 6. He says, but I am a worm. This is amazing when you study this. And if we had the time, we'd go into the depth of it. But I am a worm and no man. I'm a worm and no man. Do you remember what he said? 
You remember what he said to Isaiah? What, he, what Isaiah was saying? When he said to Jacob, when he was functioning in his Jacob nature, cunning, deceitful, subtle, which he inherited in Genesis 3, verse 1 through 6, he said, fear not, you worm, Jacob. Why? And you men of Israel, I will help you. Saith the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You know what? That's what he was saying here. He said, I, I've become a worm in judgment. I've become in no man. Did you know that in Isaiah 50 and verse 6, they beat him to a pulp prior to the cross? And through the process of the trials, six different ones, by the way, that he had on a, over a long period, and we'll get into the details of these, he did grow a beard. And these soldiers were tearing it out and hawking lungers, spitting on him and taking, when it says they hit him, you'll see this in Matthew, the 27th chapter, you, you, you will see this brought out. And when it says they were hitting him with the palms of his hand, here's the precious lamb of God. And the palms, they had what was amount to like bamboo in their hands and they were beating him on the head and about his face and his body. That's what, I, that's what Isaiah 50 verse 6 says. And his visions were so marred in 52 and verse 14, you couldn't even tell he was a man. That's what he's saying here. I am a worm because all the sins of those are on me in identification. I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they laughed me to scorn, that's what they did. You'll see it in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he was on the cross. They were mocking him. They said in, in Matthew 27 and verse 42, hey, look, he saved others. He can't save himself. Well, the only way that he could save others would be that lamb that would not save himself. But you can, and you and I can be sure his father did hear him. Isaiah 53, those 12 verses, they, that God did answer him by not forsaking, by forsaking him. He did answer him. He's the race, he's the head of a whole new race of believers. A whole new race. That's you and I. That's you and I. And they were laughing him to scorn, they're shooting out the lip. They said that. And then through the demonic atmosphere, they were saying in and through them, Come down from the cross in Matthew 27 and verse 43, and then we'll believe your God. They say he's the son of God. Come down from the cross and prove it. Well, he didn't. Do you know why? Because the love of the Father fastened him as a nail in a sure place where out of his death he was able to offer to whosoever will, in, in, in Revelations 22 and verse 17, whosoever will, to drink freely of the water of life and to experience freedom. To experience freedom. Then he says it here in verse 8 of Psalm 22. And this is fulfilling Matthew 27 and verse 43. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him deliver him. Seeing he delighted him as such mock evil, the enemy through his lies. But you are he that took me out of the womb. And that little 14-year-old peasant girl, Luke 135, the lamb. He was forming the lamb. 
forming his body. You did make me hope when I was you did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from the womb. And you were my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near me, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, the atmosphere. You remember when he was even in, in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke, the 22nd chapter, and you read verse 44, it says he sweat great drops of blood. There was such an intensity of the atmosphere, trying to get, wipe out, trying to kill his human body prior to the cross so he wouldn't go there. But love didn't stop there. Love suffered long. He suffered in the garden, even before all those beatings and those six trials. He suffered. You see, love suffers long for us and did and finished it for us. Finished it. They gaped upon me with their mouths, a ravening, as a ravening and roaring lion. The evil lion, but we're going to see a different one by the time we get to Revelations, the fifth chapter, very soon. He said, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. He's hanging on the cross. And they developed it. It was the Roman crucifixion of the most evil torture you could even imagine. They would try and lift up their legs because they would hang and, and, and because of what would happen, it would crush the lungs so they couldn't even breathe. So they couldn't breathe. They would have to push up. They would have to push up. Oh, he said, all my he said, uh, yeah, my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. He was thirsty. You'll see that again in the synoptics. They offered him. One time he refused it. Another time he didn't. We'll get into all those things at a later date. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me into the dust of death the dust of death. That's the grave where the body goes. And hopefully not to hell for those that received him, that the spirit and soul returned to God who gave it, gave it to them through the lamb. We see that in Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and feet on the cross. I may tell all my bones, they're sticking out. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them. Again, you'll see this all again in the synoptics. Among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be you not far from me, O Lord, my strength. Hasten to help me. And boy, you know, he had to pass through death for God to do that. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, my dear one, my precious one, because that's what you were to me, Father, my whole time when I walked on the face of the earth and my humanity. From the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth, Satan, as a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. In the midst, right? For you have heard me from the horns, of the unicorns. We'll get into these in another time, possibly on Thursday. 
more in detail, much more in detail of what these things mean. And then he said, I will declare your name unto my brethren. Because there's the answer. You took me out of death. Romans 8, 11. You took me out of death, out of the grave, never out of hell. The Son of God, and, and as the Son of Man, never went into hell. He went into the grave. That's Psalm 16 and verse 10. It's not hell. It's Sheol. It's the grave. Never went there based upon 1 Peter 3 and 19 and 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. I will declare your name, your nature. I manifested it. I'm going to declare your name unto my brethren. And this is brought out in Hebrews. And he's bringing those Jews that were born again in the book of Hebrews. And they were born again. But they were going right back to the law. Right back to private interpretation. And the only way we can do that, apart from the Lamb submitting to him, is through the flesh. We'll privately interpret it. That's why, again, we say emotions, good or bad, they are not an indicator. They are not an indicator that God loves us. They can, they can be, the good ones are a fruit. The bad ones are an indication of there's no love in the experience. I will declare your name unto my brethren. This is Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through 12. And, and, and all through the book of Hebrews, by the way. In the midst of the congregation will I praise you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm one with them. They're one with me. We're all going to praise you, Lord, for what you've done. And he's, he's thanking God for making him the lamb so that he could satisfy the Father and that he could be our only satisfaction. And he is our only satisfaction. He is. Don't try and make someone else to be the measure of your satisfaction. Rest in who you are. Rest in it. And then we have him in our own individuality to give to one another. That's what fellowship is. It's giving Christ in us, in that vessel, towards each other. And freely. It's free. There's no requirements. There's no performance that's required. It's free. The Lamb has finished it in John 19 and verse 30. You, you that, that reverence the Lord, praise him, all you seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you seed of Israel. Of course, he did all of that to the Jew first. We see that in Romans. You'll see it in all the epistles. He did it to the Jew first. That's why the church did begin, did begin in Acts, the second chapter, not the ninth, 13th, or 28th chapter. The church began long before Paul was raised up to be the apostle to the church. Okay, it's long before that because they were all Jews that they heard the gospel of salvation in their tongues where they were scattered as Jews to all these different countries. And again, that's why those are not unknown angelic languages, gibberish and nonsense in 1 Corinthians 14, 2 and in verse 11 to 14. They are not, they're known foreign languages. Glossolalia is the Greek word. Finally, here we see the lamb. And all through, and this is where we'll end this this morning, there's so much that we're just going to try and go over <laughs> and, and hopefully we'll have the time to go into it. Now when he talks to the church, he speaks to the church, us, in this church age. Those seven churches there, it's really called the church, but they're in different locations. There's not many churches, there's one church. 
Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, and I will build my church, one church in different locations, and in those locations of those Asiatic churches. And it's very interesting to understand, Asia, where the churches were beginning to settle, Asia means miry clay. They were settling in the world. The world was infiltrating, infiltrating the church. But he spoke to those seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and verse 3. And that's church history in its fullness. Church history. And again, we'll go, we can go into that and bring out the reality of that too. In those, in those seven churches. The sevenfold church, the one church, seven, completion. One church. But then the apostles told in Revelations 4 and verse 1, I want you to come up here. Now, in a vision, because he's on the Isle of Patmos, he's bringing him up to the heavens in a vision. Come up here, I will show you things that must come to pass. So chapters four and five of Revelations are a heavenly view. And that's where he brings us. We are a heavenly people because we know that the tribulation period in Jeremiah 30 verse seven, it says that it is Jacob's trouble. Jacob, where did the 12 tribes come from? out of his loins with his children. It's called Jacob's trouble. Remember when his name was changed in Genesis 32 and verse 28. His name was Jacob, but called now Israel. So we know that judgment is past for us in John 3 and verse 36 and John 5 and verse 24. It's past for us. But he's going to judge the earth. We're in heaven. And that'll be brought back again, too, in Revelations, the 19th chapter. But in between, chapters 6 to 18 is dealing with Jacob's trouble. You see it in Daniel, the 12th chapter, in the first verse, with Jeremiah 30, verse 7, as we said. And judgment has to do with the earth. That's the prophecy that we have a more sure word of, because prophecy is dealing with the earth, which Christ will fulfill fulfill as the judge, and we'll see how that operates in, in Revelations, the fifth chapter. And we will see this crystal clear. There'll be crystal clear clarity with this. And this is what I love about that. Even the fact that we come here, and maybe all these things seem to be going over our head, but the fact that we came here and we were intreatable, I promise you God's storing it up in you. He is. And then, then there needs to be a continuation of that too, because it's the eternal word of God and it's supernatural, it doesn't end. It does not end. And this is why we need the specifics of the Word of God. That's what brings out the skill, of the supernatural skill and the gift that's brought out in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 and 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24. Because that gift, that, that gift is the man himself and when he's, when he's connected to the head in his experience in Ephesians 4.8, now he functions in the gift of evangelists and pastors and teachers in Ephesians 4.11, and that's why when that word is being taught to the church for the, for the work of the ministry, to the edifying of the body of, a Christ, of Christ, that we become a supply, and through 16, we all become that. This is all because of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. But now, we're, he brings the apostle up. So we know that judgment is for Israel and those nations in prophecy in 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. That's why we have a more sure word. 
than the prophecy. We have Christ, the day, the light, the day dawning in us and lighting us up with who we are as heavenly people, with all of what he's accomplished in his person and the work that he's finished. When we get to the fourth chapter again, verse 1, it says, After I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And who's the door in John 10, 7 and 9? It's Christ. And the first voice I heard was, as it were, a trumpet. This is a type of the rapture. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, the rapture. We were raptured off the earth. Then begins the seven-year tribulation period. First three and a half years are rosy and good. Last three and a half, if you add up every war, every evil thing that ever happened in those last three and a half years, it'll pale in comparison to those last three and a half years. Many will, will get saved. There's no question about that. As will in the millennial. But the church is far different off the earth. Prophecy has to do with judgment, God judging the earth, backslidden Israel, unsaved Israel, and all of her enemies. That's brought out in Revelations chapter 6 through 18. It's not a mysterious, hard-to-understand book. It is not so much a doctrine as it is a treatise. It's a treatise. It's bringing out incredible truths. But then we see this. We see how this happens. And 4, 1 to 11. And there's so much in there that possibly we'll get into in the weeks to come. Or the days to come. But in Revelations, the fifth chapter, we're brought again. Here's the picture. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat upon a throne a book written within on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. Those seals have to do with judgment, not for us. We're above it. The judgment will come on the earth and we'll come back with him in Revelations, the 19th chapter, specifically in those verses in 11 to 16, following it down through, right through Revelations 20 and right to the end of that, where we come in to Revelations 21 and verse 1, the new Jerusalem, which is a beautiful picture of us as the bride of Christ. Here, he said, Who's, who can loose it, open the book, and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, boy, I wish we could understand these things, neither under the earth, in heaven or in earth or in hell, under the earth, that's where hell's located, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look therein. Never mind, open it. And John is saying in spirit, he said, I wept much. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to even look thereupon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, see, the root, in this sense, as we can say reverently, the second David, who was really the first, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and here's where we'll, we'll stop and we can go to the rest and, and, uh, on Thursday. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four angels, creatures, these angelic beings, and in the midst of the elders, and we'll see that those were seraphims, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb 
as it has been as it had been slain, having seven horns, fullness of power, seven eyes, knowing everything. In First John three twenty, God knows all things, which are the seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit, Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit that Christ is, and we see that again in the type and in, in the reality of Isaiah the eleventh chapter in those first six verses. The seven spirits sent forth into all the earth. What do we see? And I love how the Amplified says this, and we're going to close this. Because the Amplified says, when I saw, I was weeping, but then the elder said, look, there he is. There he is. The lion of the tribe of Judah. For all those that are his is a lamb. For all those that aren't, the lion speaks of judgment but not for us. He took it all. He took it all for us, the precious lamb of God. And I love how it says it in the Amplified. He said, I saw him, and that's what it brings it out in, in, to some extent in the original Koine Greek New Testament. It says, it's just as if he's been freshly slain. No one, and we've shared this before, no one of the redeemed will ever have a mark of the sufferings of times that they went through. No one. But the Lamb will. Do you remember when he came back and he said to doubting Thomas, who's a picture of doubting Israel? No, he said, I won't believe until I see him. And they will in Revelations 1 and verse 7. Oh, they'll see him. And then they'll weep. They'll see him. And then they'll weep. But he said, see, touch me. He said, he's resurrected. He's resurrected. He said, touch me. Touch me here. Because remember, the nails were not put in the hand. They were put in between these two bones. He said, touch me. Put your hand in the prince and put it in the side where that Roman soldier in, in John 19, verse 34, pierced me and out came blood and water, and salvation and cleansing that came out. He said, touch me. And then he said, oh, I believe. And you know what he said? He said, blessed are they who have not seen yet believe. That's us. Whom having not seen, in 1 Peter 1.8, you love him. Because he's more real than anything. He's more real than anything. And only the Holy Spirit is the theologian, God word, and scholar who can bring out Christ. He's the only one that can show who our proper master is. It's not something we earn. It's something we'll grow in forever. He said he's freshly slain. He did. Remember on the road to, of Emmaus? Those two disciples in Luke the 24th chapter in verses 48 and 49. He said, touch me. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. But one thing we will see. He will always be the beautiful, loving, revelation as we see him face to face at 1 Corinthians 13, 12 of a love that suffered for us so incredibly, so incredibly. And he will bear the marks of the suffering of time. We will see him in a beautiful, absolutely glorified body. And if you want to know what he, what he looks like, the, the types that they brought out, the men, Daniel, John, Daniel, in, in the book of Daniel, in John, the beloved apostle, 
in the book of Revelations, they described him in, the, in what they considered the most beautiful things that earth could ever, and, and of course it pales but in comparison, but they are the types and symbols. And that's why Daniel, uh, Revelations is unfolded in Daniel, Daniel's unfolded and completed in Revelations, and they're one. And they all bring out lamb. If you and I go to this book and try and just get theology and scholarship and knowledge and it's not the lamb experientially, then we just took Christ. We took the lamb. We took experiential love right outside of the Father. Of, of the Father. And of course, we couldn't do that literally, but experientially. Because it's the lamb that took away the sin and propitiation and the sins of all those that are his. And Father, thank you this morning for your precious word. The only way we can come up with this, the only way I can is the Holy Spirit as he brings the scriptures, he takes the written word and makes it the living word. In Hebrews 4.12, it's living, it's powerful, it's sharper even, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of that soul the soul that still requires something from God when it's finished, from the Spirit. The Spirit, the Spirit of the Lamb, the fulfillment, fulfillment of who He is. Father, thank You so much for Your precious Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.